0: Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer.
1: I'm Courtney Eskoin. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance
0: Media, and in today's episode, we'll be discussing the extension of the Broadway shutdown and whether the outlook for reopening might be different for some non-Broadway theaters. Talking about the ways regularly confronting racism and implicit bias affects Black dancers' mental health... Unpacking ballerina Catherine Morgan's revelation that she left her plum ballet job after being told she was too large to perform. The hives are already forming, as I say that. And hearing a message from Dormisha, the tap icon who is creating a world premiere for the upcoming Fall for Dance Festival. We're really excited for you to hear from her. Um, before we get into all of that, and there is a lot to get into this week Um, We actually have some news of our own. We have been loving hearing from dance artists of all kinds in our voice memo series. And that sort of message in a bottle format is intimate in a way that felt right at the beginning of this pandemic moment, I think. But if you're like us, you often finish listening to these five minute clips and just want to hear more from these really smart, interesting, inspiring people. So we're going to give you more. We are about to launch a series of longer form interviews with the dance artists who are shaping the news that we talk about during the rest of the episode. These aren't bonus episodes. Each conversation will just be included at the end of a regular episode. You're not going to have to go looking for it. And we'll be starting off with a big bang, with a huge bang in the November 12th episode where we'll be talking to choreographer and artistic director and all around wonderful human being, Kyle Abraham. Um, Yay! (laughs) Yes. Yes. Needless to say, we are super excited about this it's something we've been hoping to do for a while and if there are dancers or choreographers or administrators or educators or any other kind of all-stars that you would love to hear interviewed please let us know give us a shout on twitter at dance underscore edit or instagram at the.dance.edit so now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown and we're starting with a doozy of an item this week lydia take it away
1: oh here we go so, <laughs> the UK government recently received heavy criticism for an ad in its Cyber First Rethink, Reskill, Reboot campaign. For some background, Cyber First is the National Cyber Security Center's program to attract talent and to inspire young people to get into tech. But the ad featured a photo of a black ballet dancer tying her point-to's with the caption, "The team's next job could be in cyber, she just doesn't know it yet. Rethink, Reskill, Reboot. The prevailing public sentiment toward this can probably best be summed up as, yikes, and for good reason. The fact that the ads surface now, as thousands of jobs in the creative sector are disappearing or in jeopardy, makes it seem deeply insensitive. Not to mention that it uses a black ballet dancer as the example of someone who should retrain at a time when the performing arts are in the midst of a racial reckoning. To quote Matthew Bourne on Twitter, this has to be a joke, right? In slightly cheerier
2: UK-based news, uh, London Sadler's Wells Theatre announced that it would be offering some in-person performances for socially distanced audiences beginning at the end of this month. Now, while the vast majority of its originally planned performances remain cancelled through late January, Birmingham Royal Ballet, English National Ballet, Alexander Whitley Dance Company, and the venue's annual break-in convention will all present new works, and Arthur Pita's The Little Match Girl
1: will also be back around Christmas. A five-part docuseries on the Lady M's of Broadway's Moulin Rouge is streaming on Playbill. It was filmed before the Broadway shutdown. I really need to make time to watch that. Same here.
2: Um, And a Shonda Rhimes-produced documentary focused on the Debbie Allen Dance Academy has been given a release date. Dance Dreams Hot Chocolate Nutcracker follows Allen and her school as they prepare its annual holiday show and will debut on Netflix November 27th. So
1: exciting and Alvin Ailey will forge ahead with a month-long digital season in December, featuring a world premiere by Jamar Roberts and a new collaborative response to Revelations with Clifton Brown, Matthew Rushing, and Yusha Marie Sorzano.
2: The dance program at University of Nebraska-Lincoln was saved from a proposed budget cut that would eliminate the program entirely following a successful donation campaign spearheaded
1: by students and alumni. Um, And Michaela de Prince, the Dutch national ballet soloist and all around inspiration, has um, announced a leave of absence from her company to, quote, heal from recent losses and think about the artist she wants to be. And we're all sending her tons of love. Yes, absolutely.
0: That's just taking the time she needs.
1: And in
2: some dark news, the Broadway League announced that ticket sales on the Great White Way have now been suspended through May 30th, which will extend the longest Broadway shutdown in history to 444 days. Oof, hearing that number.
1: It's rough. So jarring, even now.
0: So that last item is actually also a segue into our next segment, in which we'd like to talk about two stories related to the extension of that Broadway shutdown. Um, First... We're going to go to a really dark place. This is kind of a dark episode. Apologies in advance. We're going to talk about an essay that Broadway dancer Brian Spatonic wrote for Dance Magazine this week, just as the news about the delayed reopening broke. He was, until the shutdown, a longtime member of the Chicago cast. It's one of those steady jobs that insiders joke about as a government job. But now he's facing the possible end of his Broadway life. These are the stakes now as we get each new announcement from the Broadway League, more and more artists are starting to think that they might never return to the stage. More and more shows are in danger of closing. And Spitonik provided a very clear-eyed and therefore even more heartbreaking perspective on all of it.
1: This was um, so well-written, uh, but absolutely so heartbreaking, as you said. Spitonik had performed with Chicago for 13 years, and the coronavirus forced that to come to a halt. Over the course of the pandemic, the stages of grief have been referenced often, including a few times on this podcast, and that was something that came to mind when I was reading this piece. He talked about the early phase of quarantine as a kind of delirium of thinking, "We're, we're on this forced hiatus, but everyone we know is drinking wine every night, we can drink wine every night, that kind of thing, and setting lofty targets for productivity, like accomplishing multiple challenging goals, from intermittent fasting to writing a book. Uh, and this kind of led up to the extensions of the shutdown and the gradual realization that life as it was was not returning, possibly ever. Uh, and he described struggling to find meaning in the work when other jobs arguably played a larger role in fighting the pandemic and he was very open about asking himself questions like you know will i have aged out of chicago by the time there's a vaccine and these are things that so many performers are are grappling with um and to see this um addressed in this way was just really moving there is a line that really got me in this without those other
2: bodies i had no idea who to be in mine Mm -hmm. Which I think is something that as dancers, we're feeling maybe even more than the general populace. You know, as we are keeping six feet apart from each other and as we are isolating within our homes to varying degrees, depending on what area of the country you're in, and particularly in New York, where it's such a crowded city normally, and navigating the sidewalks is always a bit of a dance in and of itself in normal times. And now that's not the case anymore, because everything is a bit more charged and a bit more fraught and especially as dancers when we're so used to feeding off of other people's physical energies and in a lot of ways defining ourselves in how we physically relate to our fellow dancers. What do you do when you don't have that? And this is one of the most frank and honest evaluations of that feeling that I've seen anywhere. And like, I'll be honest, I had to walk away from my computer for a few minutes after reading this. It just, it hit really hard.
0: We're, we're all really close to this story, it feels like. His level of honesty, Lydia, you mentioned this, the fact that he talked about this sense that this career that is everything to you and that can offer so much meaning and goodness to so many people is still, when it comes down to it, fundamentally inessential in a way that becomes very apparent when hundreds of thousands of people are dying. And of course, there's an immediate counter argument to that. There's the whole apocryphal Winston Churchill line about, you know, if we don't have the arts, what are we fighting for? The arts are what make life worth living, which is true. And yet, if we're asking what our priorities should be right now, what our government's funding priorities should be right now, Lord help us. Can anyone in good conscience say that dance is at the top of the list? It's just it's yet another reason Why the United States specifically, its failure to address this pandemic in a responsible way is infuriating because it didn't have to be this dire. This situation is so dire because a group of people in power made a series of bad decisions. And the fact that this is the way it's playing out now for so many artists, it's, yeah, just you got to walk away from your computer for a minute to kind of process it all. So even within this grim virus scenario that we're living through, Broadway situation might not have to dictate the rules for every performance venue in New York City or outside of it. Those old Broadway houses are first of all, an epidemiologist nightmare because they're all incredibly cramped backstage and onstage and in the audience everywhere. And then Broadway shows are also for profit, meaning that they rely on ticket sales from full houses. So socially distance audiences aren't really a workable option, but those restrictions don't apply to many other theaters. So, uh, you know, a sort of glimmer of hope New York Times story this week highlighted a group of larger, more flexible nonprofit performance venues that are currently lobbying to reopen sooner rather than later for some socially distanced shows.
2: Yeah, so a lot of the shows that are kind of in a coalition together trying to make this argument, these venues are um, much more flexible in terms of how they're configured in many cases, as well as they're nonprofit, therefore Um, Their funding structure is already inherently a little bit different. And so doing socially distanced seating isn't automatically economically out of the question. Um, And these include Park Avenue Armory, which, you know, is used to be a drill (laughs) hall. It's massive. Um, The Shed, which the whole thing about the Shed is that it's supposed to be a reconfigurable space. And they're essentially lobbying to say hey, the solutions to this don't need to be one-size-fits-all
1: if we do our research and if we can do this in a healthy and responsible way. The New York Forward Advisory Board has said that it's likely that certain segments, such as flexible spaces, will be likely to find their spaces again in use sooner than some traditional theaters provided the health situation permits. Um, That's a quote. And um, New York State is already permitting flexible spaces to hold events like gallery exhibits, film production, and rehearsals. So it looks like there's a path forward. Um, And according to the New York State Council on the Arts, 45% of the performance venues surveyed throughout the state had majority flexible seating. So
0: that's all all good indicators. Um, For what it's worth, the show that the Armory is proposing is a dance show. It's Bill T. Jones' new work, Afterwardness, which is already in the process of being rehearsed for video with a cast. Right now, that includes 96 COVID-tested people playing the audience. And the idea is that then they can mount the same show, hopefully, in the future for real audiences of 96 people. Hopefully, this could be a way for live performance to kind of, I mean, limp forward, but to, to keep moving forward during this strange time. So in our next segment, we're going to return to a familiar theme for the podcast, um, Dancers Mental Health this week, we want to talk about how black dancers specifically can handle the psychological effects of the racial trauma that's inherent in their everyday lives, which then is often exacerbated by the racism of the dance organizations or artists that they're working with. Dancer and choreographer Sydney Mosley talked to a psychology professor who's the author of Mental Health Among African Americans about this issue for Dance Magazine this week. And first of all, Let's just take a minute to appreciate Sydney and all of the incredible work she's been doing, especially recently.
1: Sydney and her collective um, SLM dances have been doing really important work, not only as artists, but also um, around education and activism. Um, Just to name two examples, Sydney recently outlined steps to decolonize dance education through the Dance Union Town Hall for Collective Action. Uh, She wrote for Essence about the experience of being a Black choreographer in a piece titled How to Be a Black Choreographer and Not Die, But in this uh, interview, Dr. Turner discussed how the stress of witnessing or experiencing racism can have adverse effects on the mental health of black people. And he mentioned that racism and discrimination are connected to lower self-esteem, increased stress and risk of mental health challenges like depression. Um, And something important that was mentioned in the beginning of the article was a reference to a Harvard Business Review article from this year on how organizations can support the mental health of Black employees. And it said, it's important to understand that when Black Americans watched the video of George Floyd being killed by a white police officer, we saw ourselves collectively Black Americans were traumatized. Dr. Turner pointed out that psychologically healthy work environments offer support for employees to practice self-care and give them the space to authentically be themselves. Um, Some self-care suggestions were having a routine to cope and de-stress, such as taking 15 to 20 minutes to read or take a walk or do breathing exercises. Two resources that the article suggested were melanin and mental health and therapy for Black girls um, to find Black therapists.
0: Yeah. We will link to both of those in the episode description. I think it's important to note that this shouldn't be a problem for Black dancers to solve alone, that the onus should be not on the dancers, but rather on the people in power, the artistic directors, teachers, choreographers, to create an environment in which Black dancers feel supported and heard.
2: I think one of the striking things in this article was when Dr. Turner said, um, talking about Black artists being in white-led institutions, uh, talking about how that impacts them depends on whether the spaces allow them to be authentically themselves and i think that like setting up an environment that allows authenticity from all the people in the room and therefore allows them to value themselves and feel valued is kind of the key important thing and that cannot lie at the feet as margaret was saying of black dancers this has to be institution wide
0: so next we're going to talk about a different kind of dancer trauma because this is the trauma episode we're going to talk about ballerina Catherine morgan and her experiences with sizeism. and if you don't already know morgan and her story here's sort of the the cliff notes version she had a brilliant early career at new york city ballet But she saw that career sidetracked by illness, um, by what her doctors eventually determined was hypothyroidism, which, among its many other devastating effects, caused her to gain weight. After spending nine years figuring out what was going on with her body, and also, for what it's worth, going through a terrible divorce, she made this triumphant return to the stage with Miami City Ballet last year. And then, this week, she released a YouTube video revealing that she'd left Miami City Ballet because she had not been allowed to dance even roles that she'd been promised because she was, quote unquote, too large. It's 2020. Somehow we are still here.
2: I mean, that kind of sums up my feelings about the whole thing. Because I stole it from you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Margaret, when you sent us that video, that was my immediate gut check reaction was, how are we still here? And Catherine in her video, it's A long one, but it's worth watching all the way through. Um, Something she talked about was you know, you might not be an artistic team's cup of tea. That is just the reality of being a dancer. But staying in an environment that is detrimental to your mental or physical health, no role, no job title, no position is worth. That is worth more than your well-being, and that's something that
1: she was really emphatic about. It feels like in the ballet world, we've had so much more open dialogue about body standards in recent years, but that's not necessarily resulting in significant changes to body standards at ballet companies, um, or the changes are happening very slowly.
2: Well, and I think it's that thing, right, where we, we think like, okay, new leadership coming into companies, that's going to change the standard, but does it necessarily, does it actually change anything or do we just see the repetition of the same patterns that they went through when they were dancers Mm -hmm. and I am not calling out anyone specifically I am not naming names at all want to be very clear about that however this is a pattern that we have seen repeated so much and that happens so often and often happens completely silently we don't Mm -hmm. usually end up hearing from the dancer that I was told I couldn't do this part because I was too big because the way that our culture is set up, not just in ballet, but also in the wider world, tells you, well, hey, you didn't work hard enough. I guess you didn't want it enough, which is complete and absolute bullshit. It's not that. It's not the dancer's fault. If anyone listening to this, if you've seen videos of Katherine Morgan dance, you know that she is an exquisite dancer this isn't on her it's not a matter of working harder it's not a matter of not caring enough it is that this standard needs to change because if you're a beautiful dancer you should get to perform and to say otherwise is frankly holding ballet back and also robbing us of a lot of really incredible artists
0: deep breaths Courtney <laughs>
2: I'm going to start crying. <laughs> I'm so mad.
0: <laughs> for For like the third time on this podcast, I feel like we're all sort of on the brink of tears. I do want to refer people back to Garnet Henderson's great Dance Magazine story from the summer called What Would It Take to Change Ballet's Aesthetic of Extreme Thinness? It talks about how this sizeism problem is, as you guys have said, just baked into ballet from the first days of training. It affects pretty much everybody. I think all of us on this podcast have been affected and traumatized by it. That's why we're so emotional about it. It is absolutely related to ballet's failure to embrace diversity on all fronts, including racial diversity. The sense that a certain uniform look is part of the arts appeal is just wrong. It is a preference that is completely out of line with all of the body positivity movements happening elsewhere in the dance world and the world at large. As the article says, we need re-education. We need directors to take meaningful action by hiring and casting dancers of all sizes. It is time for this to stop.
1: I think a lot of dancers internalize these unhealthy body standards and perpetuate them. And that's not something that I think gets discussed enough. Um, How do you unlearn that so that you don't inflict the same harm upon other dancers or the next generation of dancers?
0: Yeah, transparency is part of how we're going to stop the cycle, 100%.
1: And honestly, thank you to Catherine
2: for continuing to be so open and, frankly, having been an inspiration for so many people, myself included, over the years.
0: Her courage is pretty extraordinary. Thank you. Okay. Now... (laughs) We have a bit of positivity. We have the next installment in our ongoing voice memo series, which we're going to keep doing until our um, we start our longer form interviews on November 12th. So this week, we have one of the few dancers out there who requires only one name, Dormisha, who is simply one of the greatest tap dancers of all time. She has this Unmatched combination of elegance and rhythmic complexity. She's a master of swing, that ineffable groove that eludes so many dancers. She's also a gifted choreographer. She's creating a brand new work for the upcoming Digital Fall for Dance Festival, which will premiere at the end of this month.
3: And here she is to talk about all of that. Hi, dance edit listeners. This is Dormisha here to share just a little bit about uh, myself and the piece. Uh, The piece is called Lady Swings the Blues. Uh, Lady Swings the Blues celebrates the generations of black women whose contributions to the art form of tap dance have remained mostly under the radar. I wanted to do something to honor the ladies who paved the way for me. Ladies like Cora Lared, Dr. Jenny Lagan, Lois Bright, Harriet Brown, and Diane Lady Di Walker, to name a few. Working on a new piece in a pandemic had its challenges. I had to reimagine the piece a few times due to COVID-19 protocol. I was limited to the amount of people I could have in the space. So I decided to go with the rhythm section. Most of our rehearsals were at my house. Um, I have a little garden area out back and we were able uh, to have rehearsals outside. The weather was great, so we took uh, advantage of that and had rehearsals outside and everyone uh, kept their distance and wore masks if they felt like they wanted to do that. Um, we got together once a week for four weeks, tweaking things at every rehearsal until we were all very satisfied with uh, with the arrangements. Um, We would talk about grooves, tempos, and how to arrange each groove. Um, And I would record the music so I could have it to work with over the course of the week. I would also send the musicians phrases to learn. I would record uh, myself dancing in the rhythm and send it to the djembe player so he could learn it. Then he would create a phrase and send it to me so I could learn it. In-person rehearsals were great because we could finally play together in real life and in real time. Um, also in creating this piece, I did, um, a lot of research. I had footage of the ladies on repeat. Um, and it was amazing to realize the difference in their styles, to see their musical choices, the tempos they decided or that they were dancing to at the time, how they addressed the musicians and their audience, and, um, and even what they were wearing. There was so much, uh, inspiration there was such a broad range I had so much to um to to be inspired by and so in order to acknowledge these ladies, um, I incorporated different grooves and tempos I made sure to have a connection with the musicians and in this case the virtual audience <laughs> and uh, and what I decided to wear was inspired by Diane Lady Di Walker from her performance at the American Jazz Festival in 1987. I honestly don't think we have to worry about the life of tap. Tap dance is thriving all over the world. And it's still at the beginning stages of being recognized as a quote-unquote serious or real art form. But at what cost? As tap dance artists, I think it's our responsibility to be creative uh, while maintaining the integrity and authenticity of the form. I think of Robert Reed. He would end his classes with a saying... Um, he would say and have the students say, respect the dance. And some of my peers have continued that tradition. Uh, but I think just now I realize w- what that really means. So yeah, let's respect the dance. Let's maintain the integrity and the authenticity of the form in our creativity.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dormesha. Please check out her new work, Lady Swings the Blues, which is premiering on October 26th at 7.30 p.m. in the Fall for Dance Festival. Since it's digital this year, access is available at newyorkcitycenter.org, and tickets are as always $15. Also, be sure to follow Dormesha on Instagram. She's at Dormesha, of course. And just keep up with everything she's working on. She always has so many cool projects in the works. All right thanks everyone for joining us. We will be back next week for hopefully slightly more upbeat discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing.
2: Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone.
0: The Dance Edit podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Meenan Our music is by Celestine, and special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.